Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. At the level of desire that we were just showing here, castration is experienced as something negative, as a subtraction of sorts. And it's negative in the sense that it leaves us lacking. Castration leaves us lacking. And as a result, it leaves something to be desired. In other words, it leaves us desirous. Castration at the level of desire here formulated on our blackboard is experienced as a negation. Castration is a subtractive process. When anxiety comes along, castration becomes something positive, a positive signal, and it's not for us any longer. Now it's a positive element for someone else's desire. And because this negation has been positivized, if you will, it does not leave us lacking. It does not leave something to be desired. We are not left desirous. We're instead left without lack. Where lack was, now something has appeared, a sign of our castration. And this feeling is not desire, but anxiety. And then here at the top, what we have is a reclamation of this negativity, where this this positivity has been negativized and marched back to this zero, if you will, which might be more helpful here even than a positive or a negative that is object A. You might say that here's the negation, here's the positivation, and then here what you have is this mediating function of A redeemed as zero, this remainder element, if you will. Now, what I want to do is talk a little bit about this A. It is one of the central themes of this seminar. And it's at this point in Lacan's seminar that object A takes on properties of the real. And here's how I want us to understand that once more, is that when the subject of pure need, the baby, is developmentally brought into the field of the symbolic with all its norms, rules, languages, and codes, there's always part of them that cannot find expression in the symbolic. There's something in there that resists symbolization. And this is the brute materiality of the subject of pure need. This is that bodily scrap or that corporal morsel that is ejected from the symbolic. Not to say that it lands on the outside, but that it's buried under shit on the inside. It's an extimate element. X meaning out, timate part is referring to intimacy. There's something extimate about this experience. And again, 
because object A is always first and foremost something bodily, a corporal morsel, a remainder of the process, a bodily remainder of the process um, known as castration. It's no surprise that desire, which is caused by this entity, is bodily. It's the desire of a body for another body. Lacan uses the expression, for instance, um, I want your heart, which can be an expression of love. I want you to love me. But of course, in traditional Lacanian terms, we read it to the letter. I don't just want you to love me. I want to reach inside your fucking chest and pull out the organ that sustains your body. I actually want your body part literally and not just to enjoy it like to the point of enjoying it as you die so think about this with the vampirism example too um i've told you earlier that the drive is somehow caught up in this now what we want to do is focus on how because i've told you that the jouissance that is reached outside of anxiety is desire satisfied partially at the level of the drive so what is the drive? The drive is a partial satisfaction of desire. Each drive is anchored in an erogenous zone that is effectively an opening in the human body. And it always, the drive, moves out and around in a circuitous way, a partial object that is always at some level a body part. It's a it runs a repetitive circuit of enjoyment around a partial object, which is always a body part. This is how the drive operates. And here's what I want to suggest to you in one of our final moves of this lecture series. If desire defends against anxiety, the drive outstrips it. Delivering us over to jouissance. If desire defends against anxiety, the drive outstrips anxiety. It outlives anxiety if you read Deleuze. And this is why Lacan is putting all of the drives, the four basic ones, on display at the end of this seminar. In each case, oral, anal, scopic, invocatory, the four basic drives, we see a way to seed partial objects to produce little A's that the drive can then circulate around. Whether your drive is oral, anal, scopic, invocatory, or hell, even phallic, Lacan, at the end of this seminar, is turning towards all of these other ways that little A's as bodily scraps are produced in order to queue up the drive. And you'll remember seminar 11, where we're going from here, one of the four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis discussed in seminar 11 is the drive. He's got it on his mind at the end of seminar 10, and it becomes a central theme in seminar 11, which is partly why we're gonna read 11. Okay, so let's talk about this one more time, how it happens. The subject of pure need, this presuppositional 
holy embodied being that we know we all were at one point is asked to find their place in the symbolic, in the big other, a world of law and order and language. What happens in this moment is that the highly embodied experience of the subject is brought into a signifying dialectic in which something is separated off, sacrificed. Lacan refers to this as a pound of flesh. What's cut out of the body is in many cases the body itself, usually though as a pile of parts. Little a, object a, designates this pound of flesh for us. It's what's been cut off in the process of integration into the symbolic, known as castration or alienation. It's an irreducible remainder of the ordeal of castration, the division of the subject, resulting in what we refer to as the split subject in and by the symbolic. Whatever else object A is, here's what we need to know about it. It is some body part. Even if it's another part that refers to your body part that resists signifierization, it's tough to talk about. Little a symbolizes what is lost in, by, and I would say most importantly, on the symbolic. Object A is what is lost on the symbolic. And all who operate at that level. Again, what we see in this seminar is Lacan associating object A with the real. It's what remains of the subject after the advent of split subjectivity in the field of the symbolic. It's an irreducible real element. That's new. That's new in seminar 10. I'll say it again. Object A, it's what remains of the subject of pure need after the advent of split subjectivity. That's where you're going to find object A. And there are lots of them, y'all. The drive, I've told you, is a partial manifestation and realization of desire. Every drive circulates around a partial object, and all partial objects are stand-ins for object A. That's why we're talking about this. So what I want to do, instead of yammering, I want to do a little bit of drawing here. You know how we like to do it. So what I'm going to do is, per usual, I'm going to save what we've got and start again. Don't forget the theme in psychoanalysis is say it again, say it better. So here's a quick riff on the drives. Let's see if we could just chart some of this stuff out. There's a drive. Four in particular get a lot of attention. And they all are popping at the end of the seminar, which is why I'm dealing with this here. Oral, anal, scopic, and invocatory. The drive is an operation, and they each emerge from a specific 
erogenous zone. <clears throat> and again, all these erogenous zones have similar structures. They're openings in the human body that usually, no, I'd say always, have a rim-like structure. <clears throat> in the case of the oral drive, it's the mouth in particular, the lips. Anal drive, it's the ass, particularly the anus. Scopic drive, it's the eyes. In particular, I'd say the eyelids, but we can just write eyes here. And invocatory, it's the ears. Invocatory here has to do with speaking and hearing, speech and hearing. Each drive is also going to have a partial object. Some physical element that stands in as a representative of A. The object cause of desire at the level of the drive gets attached to a specific object. In the case of the oral drive, the stereotypical object, you know, is the breast. So if there's an oral drive here, you will find stand-ins for the experience of lips seeking out a breast. The anal drive, the anus, the partial object is shit. Feces, that's the partial object. If you have an anal drive, what you will see are shitting-like functions where the product is treated as some sort of a strange gift. All the more so, the more obsessive you are. The scopic drive, the partial object that exists as a manifestation of object A as the cause of desire, is the gaze. Now remember, the gaze here is not a position where somebody's watching you from. It's a position of being seen, potentially being seen, whether or not you're being seen or not. The partial object of the invocatory drive, as you heard me just say, is the voice. Now, each drive is also going to have a series of verb tenses that go with it. And the verb tenses are going to be active, passive, and reflexive. And here's what that means. The verb that goes with the oral drive is sucking. <clears throat> And the way that works is <clears throat> if you have an oral drive, <clears throat> what you get off on is the active process of sucking. It can be like smoking cigarettes, for instance, drinking. The passive experience of being sucked, I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. And then the reflexive experience of, wait for it, sucking on oneself. Now, I'm not saying that you're going around giving your arms hickeys and shit. The oral drive here could be manifested at the level of nail biting. Any sort of auto cannibalism that we engage in on a regular basis, that time when you tasted your own blood just to see what it tastes like. This reflexive voice is to suck oneself you will get off in some way on eating parts of yourself, ingesting them through the lips. Kissing yourself, licking your fingers after you're eating, those are all reflexive verbalizations of an oral drive. You know people that lick their fingers 
That's the oral drive at work. Now, I'm not saying that they're licking their fingers because they've had them on breasts. The breast is just like an original partial object around which the original manifestation of the drive at the level of the lips typically circulated. There are lots of stand-ins for the breast, the drink, the cigarette, and before it, look at the trajectory from nipple to bottle to pacifier to thumb. Notice this, the thumb sucker is somebody who gets off on sucking themselves. And the thumb sucker can oftentimes become the nail biter. This is the drive at work. Now we can go on the anal drive with the anus and the obsession with feces. You know the verb here, it's to shit. Lacan spends a lot of time in these last few lectures here talking about the anal drive and the commandment, the demand that the big other issues to the potty training child, which is shit. On the one hand, hold it and then shit as a commandment. The, stopic, the scopic gaze is to see. If you have a scopic drive, you get off on viewing things. You may be a photographer. You may enjoy going to art museums. You may enjoy a good sunset. Instagram could be your medium. You also are going to enjoy being seen. You don't just go to Instagram to look at others posting beautiful things. You oftentimes like to see who has liked your posts, who is actually enjoying watching you do what you do online. And then reflexive too is, not just looking at others' pictures of themselves and enjoying the way that they like yours, but yourself liking your own images. This is, for instance, somebody who may have an Instagram profile that is dedicated to a series of lectures on a slightly obscure psychoanalyst who then goes to their personal Instagram account after posting at the lecture site and then immediately likes what's just been posted. That would be a reflexive verbalization, if you will, of the scopic drive, the drive to see. And then, of course, down here with the invocatory to hear. So this is somebody who enjoys listening to music, always has their headphones in, actively listening all the time. This is somebody who also loves to yammer. Here is the lecturer for example. It's also somebody who enjoys being yammered at in the passive voice, who likes being talked to, but also somebody in the reflexive voice who enjoys hearing themselves speak. Now, some of the things that have come up in our seminar here have to do with the scopic drive. In fact, it's probably the drive that gets the most attention in this seminar. Here is the chapter on Buddha's eyelids, the Bodhisattva statue that has eyes that deliver a kind of gaze. Um, here's also talk of the smudged mirror, for instance. The thing to note is that all of these are gonna be openings in the human body. All of these in other words, places where cuts emerge. And all of these are going to be partial objects. 
standing in for that little a. And to pursue these drives, the wager here is not just to defend against anxiety, it's to outstrip it, it's to overcome it, to reclaim in the field of partial objects exactly what anxiety tries to take from us. Now, before we bring this into focus for Lacan's final works here, where he has this very strange archway that looks like the St. Louis arch, where he puts the drives, I want to just pause for a second and take some questions here. What you've got here is just a crash course on how the drives operate. They're partial manifestations and satisfactions of desire achieved by circulating around these weird partial objects that are always stand-ins for body parts that have been cast off, set aside, subtracted from the subject. You see, the breast is the original partial object for the oral drive because it is what is cut out and subtracted from the subject's experience in the process of weaning. Shit, feces, is the partial object of the anal drive because what else is shitting but taking a part of your body and cutting it out, snipping it loose, and setting it aside, getting rid of it. The gaze, remember, you don't have the gaze. At most, you are its object. It's a place remote from you from which you can be seen. We can go on and on, but the point here is that all of the partial objects around which a drive repetitively runs its circuit are bodily elements that are cut out, subtracted from, the human experience of the split subject. Now, that's why they line up with object A, as that irreducible bodily scrap, that pound of flesh that is removed from the subject of pure need when they pass into the symbolic. That's how these two phenomena link up with each other. It's why Lacan is featuring the anal, the scopic, the oral, and the like at the end of this seminar because he's trying to get us back in touch with all the ways that the split subject is constituted in the locus of the big other, and in that process has some bodily scrap of theirs shut down, ejected, removed, cut out. And now we start talking about all the ways that you can then refine relocate those partial objects at the level of a hand to be sucked, at the level of a cigarette to be smoked, at the level of nails to be bitten. You see where I'm going with this? This is the oral drive being played out. So let's see where you're at with this before we start plugging it into the end of seminar 10 with this new graph. All right. I don't want to slow down. So let's keep going here. 
We're going to save this one. Even though you can find this a very similar map of this elsewhere. In order to draw the one that Lacan trots out for us. And the page number in question here. It's at the start of one of the final chapters. Get a couple glimpses of this thing. Yeah, check out page 294. That's, I think, the clearest place where we see this thing coming about. Page 294. He gives us five. Five of these elements. And now let's see if we can chart them out here and complexify what it is that he's given us, because I think that's an important move for us to make at this point. So we've got this archway that looks something like this. And down here you've got the oral, which is laterally connected to the superego or the invocatory. And I'm writing invocatory here in place of superego because remember what we talked about just a few minutes ago about the ego ideal as the voice inside, the voice of conscience that links up with your superego as that great punisher. Here we've got the anal which is in turn laterally connected to the scopic. And then at the peak, at the top of it, we've got this really important drive of the phallic. Now what I'd like to suggest so far is that these lateral connections here illustrate a certain type of plane. What you see down here is a vocal plane, where the invocatory drive is always linked backwards in a regressive way when it does regress to the oral drive. Here's where you see speech. Here's where you see hearing. Here are the lips that talk, and here's the ear that receives. You see where I'm going with this? Up here, what you have is what I would call a visual plane. You might even say that this is temporal down here and that this is spatial up here. The scopic drive is always connected regressively when it does regress to the anal. The desire to see is always somehow linked up with the desire to shit. There's a reason why every shit you've ever taken has been witnessed by yourself. But we're not going to get too far into that. What we want to do is just start fleshing out these categories. So here we have our four basic drives. 
And this fifth one that Lacan introduces up here is the phallic drive, is what's going to correspond for us to this trajectory that gives birth to desire. From castration to the emergence of object A. What happens up here is the emergence of lack. This is our one minus one equals zero here at the phallic. And it is the turning point in this graph. But we can also add our, some elements down here that describe what was happening before and what was happening after. The oral and the anal drive are all connect, are both connected to the field of demand. And the scopic and the invocatory drive are typically characterized instead by desire. Now you can see why desire would be on the right-hand side of this graph, because you can't have desire until lack has been experienced and lack has been emerged. It's only at the phallic stage, and you can read these developmentally if you like, the oral stage, the anal stage, the phallic stage, whatever. It's only with the emergence of lack that something like desire can come into focus. So that's why we have desire on this side and demand on the other. Demand, though, is here in a simple way. We don't need to make this complicated. The oral drive <clears throat> at the level of the nursling is very much a demand <clears throat> for the other. Bring me that breast. Bring me that food. Here, the subject demands food from the other. Lacan talks about it as need in the other, <clears throat> but it's more accurate, I think, to think of it as demand. The oral drive is fundamentally a demand for something to put in your mouth from another. And it's something that you need to nourish yourself. It is a demand for food. I'll put food in quotation marks because obviously food isn't the only thing that you demand from others in order to put into your own mouth. Here we see demand for something to ingest from another. <clears throat> the demand is issued from the subject. Demand for food from the other. At the level of the anal, we see something different. Lacan talks about this as demand in the other. What we see at the level of the anal stage, especially when we get to potty training, is the others demand for not something to be nourished, not something nourishing to put in your mouth, but something poisonous, hazardous, to be ejected, some ejecta. So here's how this works. The oral drive has a demand built into it. It's the subject's demand for something nourishing, for food from the other. The anal drive also has a demand built into it but it's a demand issued by the other to the subject. And it's the other's demand for shit from the subject. 
I put shit in quotation marks because we're not just talking about poop. We're talking about all the things that shit can morph into, symbolic and otherwise. Here we see the other demanding at the stage of potty training for you to shit, exclamation point. And now's the time to poop. So I don't need to go into details here for us to see the experience where the child is told in the car to hold it, hold it, hold it. And then as soon as they get in the door, the child starts to pee a little bit and the parent freaks out and says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And then finally gets into the toilet and says, okay, now go, now shit. It's a demand that the subject produce something. And if it goes well, you know what happens. The primary caregiver jumps up and down, cheering, giving the kid treats, positive praise, positive praise for the production of shit. This is why all gifts are fundamentally shit. Because the original gift was the gift of shit. It was the first gift that each of us gave to the other. And they thanked us for it. And it was utterly and truly worthless to the point of being poisonous. And nevertheless, they thanked us for it. That's why we have phrases like it's the thought that counts. Because in the end, you know that the product, not the thought, but the thing that you were given is always just a pile of shit. It's the thought that counts, not the shit you were given. So with this, we start getting a little bit of the framing here. What Lacan also adds here at the level of the scopic, he says this is might in the other. And at the level of the invocatory, he's going to say this is desire of The other. And the reason why this absolutely matters is because we know what the desire of the other looks like here. The other in question is another we've seen. The superego does go down here. As Lacan puts it, up here at the level of the scopic, you would see fantasy. This is the rudimentary chart that starts popping out. And each of these four or five positions, remember, this is where you see a split subject being constituted in the locus of the big other. Each of these suggests a way to do that. Now we're about to add to it, but let's hold up for a second. I wanna return back to the group for questions. I'm gonna keep the chart up. Let's talk this through before we add anything more. You have to know we're getting into it now. Okay, then I want to keep going. What I'm about to add is probably going to strike you as fucking odd. 
but I wouldn't be giving you your money's worth if I didn't. Here, at the start of this thing, and I do want this to be the start of this, is another experience. Here we see the uterine experience, the origin where you have a mother and an individual to be wrapped up in themselves, connected in this very unique way that mammals are known to be connected. Then you have this radical moment of birth. Here we might call this pre-birth. In this radical thing known as birth, we see a certain experience that occurs that we traced out last time where the placenta, the child, and the mother gradually come apart. What I want to focus on here, though, is something a little bit different. What we see happening at birth is the beginning of a dialectic that will characterize each of these four or five phases. There is an in action and an out. The in that happens at the moment of birth was revealed to me by a midwife buddy who I think has delivered like half the children in Norway. And I asked her, what's the most amazing thing after you've delivered thousands and thousands and thousands of babies? For real, legit thousands. What still amazes you? And she said the most amazing thing for her is that these children can be born and go from a world without air in the sense of spirit, if you will, and then emerge and immediately take in this breath. Inhalation, the first breath, is for her still the most amazing part of that experience. That a kid could go from having gunk in its lungs and being in the gunk and as the gunk to becoming this vascular being with an opening known as the lungs and this intake of air. Lacan is onto this. He says, even at the origin, the child's first breath is an inhalation of an other environment. The inactivity of breathing in air is breathing in an other environment. And the out. Here, on page 326, I'm not making this shit up, he says, is what happens next. And if it doesn't happen next, right, people in the, in the, in the delivery room freak out. After that inhalation, what's supposed to happen next is the cry. The child is supposed to cry. The breath that goes in comes out as the vocalization of discomfort of whatever. Lacan says here that the cry that comes out is a little object A. It's a detachable object, a bodily remnant of the child. The cry is a yieldable object 
And that's what's cracking here. Every out in these dialectics is going to produce a yieldable object. And this yieldable object is a partial object. It is going to be a little a. You want to know what he's up to at the end of this book? This is what he's up to. He is tracing out all the different yieldable objects that are bodily, that give us figures, maybe even prefigurations of the object A that we're eventually going to see emerge properly in the field of the symbolic. You have to hear this. Object A is what I am. In each case, what the child is giving up as a yieldable object is something that they are. So let's keep running this through. The N at the level of the oral here is going to be nursing. The out process is going to find expression in the technique known as weaning. And the yieldable object, YO for abbreviation, is the breast. Here is your object A of the oral drive. The partial object around which the oral drive circulates is always a stand-in for the breast that you yielded in the process of weaning. In, out, yieldable object. There it is. Let's just keep going. Let's call this, this is like our Bob Ross moment. I'm just going to make some happy little dots up here and see what happens. The end moment here, in the case of the anal drive, is that famous expression, can you hold it? The holding in of shit that occurs in the experience of potty training. Potty training isn't just about finding a good place to let it out. It's also about knowing how to hold it along the way. The in process of the anal drive involves a holding of it, a holding of it in. Maybe you're very good at keeping secrets. Congratulations, you're very good at holding it. And then the out cycle of shitting. And the yieldable object here is also the partial object around which the anal drive runs its circuit. Shit. Feces. Moving over here to the scopic. In. Out. Yieldable object. <clears throat> In, what it feels like to be you on the inside, fucked up, fragmented body at root. Nevertheless, what you're constantly putting out for others 
is not a fragmented body at all, but a specular image of you just doing great. This is you looking your best self. This is the specular image. The image, the gestalt that you see in the mirror. The yieldable object here, you know it, it's the same partial object around which the scopic drive circulates. It's the gaze. The position are the positions around you from which your presentation of self as put together can be seen. And as a result, the part of you on the inside that feels like a fragmented body can be overlooked. This Lacan says in our seminar here is a proper A. And the shit over here, he says, he doesn't put it in these words, but I am, is a proto-A. So the connection here between the anal and the scopic is key. Shit or feces is a proto-A. And after the phallic stage, the gaze is going to become a proper A. So here it is again. The specular image here is me, my body, as seen by you, where the cause of my desire, all the gaps and cuts and ruptures of which I'm made are masked. They're hidden. They're what Lacan refers to over and over again at the end here. They are misrecognized. And we could go on with our ins and our outs and our yieldable object here, which would be the voice. But I think we've done enough to get to the next stage. Pausing again for questions before I clear this board in order to fill another. I am moving fast. Go ahead. Uh, question per se. I just find myself wanting to figure somehow triangulate or, or superimpose the registers over the top of that schema and see where they land. Yeah. But I feel like it's a three dimensional chess kind of intersection. I don't think it's right. It's not a flat map. Yeah, I mean, it, it's super tempting. And, and maybe what you could do is you could find a symbolic, real, and imaginary element in each of those things. Yeah, that could be a way to do it. And and what you would, the real would always be connected, at least at this little level of would be connected to that object A. So the yieldable object is always going to be a real object. It's going to be something that is nasty, that is pr that's private that we are embarrassed by when others see it um, that can also often serve as a great site of um, of um, erotic interaction so like think we're talking about lips anuses eyes and ears so think about all the ways that eyes ears lips and anuses connect 
And you can start to think about it like that. Um, the phallic, I mean, I guess kind of speaks for itself, but it's important here because it's it's the turning point from a field of demand to one of desire. Because it's at the phallic stage that we get castration, the name of the father, that symbolic square that pulls us out of the orbit of a demanding other and a demanding self <clears throat> and puts us into the field of society, which is a field of desire more than demand. For us and for Lacan, the most important thing up there right now is the scopic drive. And so I think it might be worth us like really focusing on it because listen, he doesn't know about Instagram in the early 1960s. He doesn't know that shit. He knows about TV. What we are seeing in Seminar 10 is one of the original approaches to visual culture. The way that he ends on the scopic is important for us because the basic drive of late modern society is a scopic drive. There's a reason why it's called Instagram and why its symbol is of a photo of, of a camera. Facebook also suggests a field of visuality. <clears throat> Twitter is interesting because it suggests a vocalization. To Twitter was like to chatter, to kind of like yammer on in, in speech that would have sound, but very be very shy on sense. So Twitter was birdsong, right? But it was also something that gets associated early on in modern culture with um, empty speech, with someone that just rattles on and doesn't know what they're saying. They have a lot of sound, but there's not a lot of significance in there. So birdsong is an example of that. You can hear it, but it doesn't speak to you, if you will. Um, anyway, that's that's the chattering mind, but we can talk about that later. For us, though, the scopic drive is where Lacan ends, and I think we should honor that, um, especially given that the scopic drive is the dominant drive of, of late modern uh, Western society. We have time for another question, though. What's up? All right, we're going to do this. So we've got this, this beast, whatever this thing is, we'll save it. And we move on. What I want to do now is focus on the scopic drive at the scopic level, as Lacan puts it. And it's, it can be basic. It can be as simple as an eye looking in a mirror. The mirror here represents the big other. It's the position from which you're seeing. And having reflected back to it, or reflected in the mirror, depending on how you put it, a specular image. The mirror is a speculum, right? What you see here is a gestalt. It's a narcissistic image, and it oftentimes captures the eye. We're looking at this ourselves in the mirror, and what we see is a whole body. And we're captured by this. One of the ways I told you that we can start getting at little a is to say that it's what is on the back of your mirror. It doesn't appear in the reflection. 
It's what's on the back. And I don't think it's any coincidence that in the mathheme or the algebraic symbol here for the specular image, you can see a little a contained. The specular image contains in a masked, misrecognized way, the cause of your desire. So what we see here is that little a in the scopic moment is typically alienated, misrecognized, and hidden in the narcissistic capture of a specular image. And this experience tills the soil for desire. This is what desire looks like, where the cause of your desire, the part of you that can't appear on the mirror, remains hidden all the more so, so that you can focus on what you want. You don't have to think about why you want. Instead, you get to focus on what you want. Something different happens when anxiety strikes. Anxiety is what happens when you're looking in that mirror It's the same mirror. And as we discussed last time, something appears on the mirror. It's a smudge, it's a smear, it's the food bit that flew out of your mouth while you were flossing and got stuck to the mirror. And what that does is it calls into question the narcissistic capture that your specular image invites you into. This corporal morsel, literally a morsel of food that flies from your body and gets stuck to the mirror is a sign of our brute materiality, of the fact that at base we're basically animals. In this moment, the A is no longer behind the mirror now it's on the mirror, and that A is now made to appear. It's no longer something subtracted from the field of experience. It is now there and present. When this happens, when this thing shows up, it shows up as a sign that we're not all there. We're not nearly as coherent as we'd like to think. In fact, we are still those castrated beings. What we have here is not desire, but anxiety. So Oliver, check it out. You're in the mirror with yourself and nobody else. The bathroom is all alone. There you are, whether you've smoked a joint or not. And there's that big other in the position of the mirror. And it shows up in a way that causes anxiety by forcing, even in this opportunistic way where Floss has just flung food on the mirror, by signaling what you as an ego can't bear to admit, that you lack, and you lack because you're castrated. That's what shows up on the mirror. The smear is always the smear or the trace of the imaginary phallus that's been placed under erasure. That's what these parens indicate here. 
it's still there, but in a smudged, rubbed out, if you will, fashion. Notice, this is also why we have the praying mantis as an example. Page six, he could not see himself in the insect's eye. The very start of this, this element that people often overlook. Page six, I couldn't see my own image in the enigmatic mirror of the insect's ocular globe. This is a mirror that doesn't reflect back as it's supposed to. It's reflecting back problematically. Not like a regular mirror. And what else is this? But that statue of the Bodhisattva that Lacan encounters in Japan that looks like it has eyes staring back, but in fact, it's not there at all. There are no eyes in that image. And yet we think that it is. That statue is a mirror in which nothing is reflected. And that is precisely what is reflected in the brown smudge on our blue mirror here. This is a mirror that no longer reflects unproblematically. Or better, that reflects among other things, among other objects, nothing. A no thing, a trace of the no that is our own castration. This is what we're up to with objectality and the split subject, the cause of desire. What you see smudged on the mirror is not just little a, not just a sign of your castration. It is evidence of what you are. That's what's up with object A. It's not just a part of you that's been cast aside so that you can get on with your life. It is you. That's you, man. You're not the reflection in the mirror. You're the piece of food that just landed on it. That's the important conclusion here about object A. It is what we are. And we've got a couple more turns to make, and it's only going to get weirder. But where we're going to end is with the discourse of the analyst. So I want to pause for a second, make sure we're cool so far. Remember, all this is recorded, so we can always come back. You can check this stuff out. Eventually, there'll be transcripts as well. All right, cool. Let's go. Here's what we have so far. What the subject of pure need is, is an embodied being, an animal, an enunciating subject, a subject of need, however you want to put it. But what the subject is as an embodied being can only enter the world of human togetherness, the world of appearances, the symbolic, as an irreducible remainder, some corporal trace or leftover of what Lacan calls the ordeal of the symbolic, this process of castration, which we playfully symbolized a while ago. Subject of pure need, divided by the big other, produces a split subject with a certain remainder. Here is what we're after right here, this remainder, this corporal leftover, that embodied part of the split subject that can't find its way into the symbolic. 
But here's the deal. This irreducible remainder, this cause of our desire, in order to locate it, we cannot find it at the level of our desire. Our cause as desiring subjects is always foreign to our status as desiring subjects. Don't forget, it is you, but it's a part of you that has been cut out, set aside, placed under eraser, hidden behind a swimsuit, flushed down the toilet, wiped off the mirror. Think about how fast we move to hide those corporal morsels when they pop up. The first thing you do when you see somebody staring at your teeth is wonder if you've got something in them. And the first thing you do when you find out you do is immediately get rid of it. Turn the other way. Get angry at them for not telling you sooner. This A that we are is us, but also foreign to us. Our cause as desiring subjects, again, is always foreign to our status as desiring subjects. You can't find the cause of your desire in the field of desire. The best we can do, and if you've got ears to hear, we are now starting to talk about the analyst. The best we can do is march or trace our desires back to their causes, back into, as Lacan puts it on 337, what is irreducible in the function of the A. What this does when we march our desire back to its cause is it allows us to realize that we're not infinite subjects of desire, but finite objects in a material world. Here, I'm still working with page 337. A material world that's alienated, just like us, in the field of the other. A material world known as the real. We are not infinite subjects of desire, but finite objects in the real. And that's what's at stake when you march your desire back to its cause. And what do you do when you get there? When you arrive at the object cause of your desire, at that partial object that was the cast out object that allowed you as a split subject to emerge in the field of the other. What do you do when you get there? Lacan's answer is clear. You name it. Only by naming this, by coming to terms with the cause of your desire, can we surmount anxiety. Or as Lacan puts it again on page 337, only by doing this can we push beyond the limit of anxiety. He also says on page 337, hint, hint, read page 337, that in this moment we are open to love because he says there is only ever any love when there is a name. And if you don't believe him, just say their name right now. Your mics are off. Say it out loud. Say the name of the person that you love right now, and you'll see what I mean, what Lacan means. That when you say the name of the person that you love, you can feel it in your bones. You've crossed a threshold of the utmost 
importance. That's what happens when you say their name. And let me tell you, if you say their name and you don't feel that, it probably ain't love. So what is psychoanalysis? Psychoanalysis is a search for your object A, for the cause of your desire, for that bodily scrap of you that allowed you to appear as a split subject. This is not your sense of self, but the cause of your desire in the field of the other. Which brings us to the analyst. The analyst is someone who has marched and merged their desire back into this irreducible A that they have always been. For those of you that are interested in psychoanalysis because you're clinicians, the discourse of the analyst is relevant here. It's in seminar 17. And as promised, I have a whole series of lectures that I'm going to post soon on 17, step by step, page by page, almost like what we've been doing here, except worse. This in 17 is the discourse of the analyst. A for analyst here, <laughs> but not coincidentally a capital one. If you've studied 17, you know that this is the position of the speaker. This is the position of the person or entity they're sp speaking to. This is what's produced by that moment of addressivity. And here's how we read this. The analyst has marched themselves back to the cause of their desire. And they show up as it. They have assumed the position of the cause of their desire. And that's the position from which they speak to you. There's a reason why Lacan sometimes had his barber show up and cut his hair in analysis. Why he had a tailor show up and measure the length of his arms in the middle of a session. The analyst has marched their desire back to and merged themselves with its cause. And that's the position from which they're gonna speak to you, not as ego, but as split subject. And what they're asking you to do with S1 is name it. Name here means a new master signifier. Say it again, say it better, give us the narrative, name your lack. This is how we read the discourse of the analyst. The analyst speaks to the split subject in front of them and asks them to name their desire. The same way that I just told you that only by naming one's object cause, by coming to terms with it, can we move beyond the limit of anxiety. Here's the difference. S2, as you know, if you've studied 17, means knowledge. 
It, however, is in the position of truth here. Here's your addressor, here's your addressee, here's what's produced, and here's the position of truth from which this individual speaks. What is the knowledge that the analyst withholds? What is their hidden truth when they show up as the object cause of their own desire? And by extension, yours. It's this knowledge that comes with the name. And what I would suggest is that in this moment, when desire has been marched back and merged into its object cause, it's precisely in this moment that you steal back from the big other what they've taken from you. This is that jouissance at the level of the drive that we saw as the third turn in this dialectic of desire, anxiety, and jouissance. If desire shows us once more, moving from castration as cut to object A as opening, and anxiety reverses that, forcing your object A to cough up its original truth, of castration, jouissance again is that reversal, a reclamation, if you will, of object A. That's what we see here. The analyst is somebody who has reclaimed the object cause of their desire in a field of partial objects that is them and knows this. About themselves. Knows this about themselves. Reclaimed it from anxiety in order to enjoy it at the level of the drive. That's how I would put this. Pushing past anxiety is about reclaiming the cause of your desire in order to enjoy it at the level of the drive. For the remainder of our time, I wanna open the floor to conversation, to talk. It can be talk about what you've just heard. It can be questions. It could be comments. It could be talk about where we're going to go from here. But the floor is open. We've got about 15 more minutes. And as you know, I always am willing to stick around a few minutes afterwards as best I can. So if the, in the analyst discourse, is that to say, I wonder, or to suggest that to be the analyst, you one has to have completed the circuit for themselves, or are they assuming the position of the analyst 
as if they had completed that circuit and reclaimed their own object. Like is so must have traversed the, the gap themselves. Yeah, I, I think the answer, the Lacanian answer is yes, they have to have. And what that would mean is that I think this is part of the reason why training to become a Lacanian psychoanalyst requires that you yourself undergo Lacanian psychoanalysis. So you have to go through Lacanian psychoanalysis to come out on the other side and be able to treat patients. I don't know the full details of this and how this procedure works, but it is part and parcel of what it means to become one of these professionals. Is that you have to undergo the very analysis that would allow you to move from a desire for recognition, which is how the ego operates, to a recognition of your desire at the level of its cause. We know what we all want. What we all want is recognition and celebrity and money and stuff and fill in the blank, right? Why we want it is a totally different question. It's not a question of objectivity, the stuff that we want. It's a question of objectality, why we want it. What is the cause of my desire? Well, I want it because I don't have it. In analysis, what you're asked to do is to pass from the objective field of constantly searching for recognition from others to an causal field where you're looking at and trying to recognize not what you want, but why you want it. What was taken from me all those years ago that produced this experience of lack that I am now trying to satisfy by, I don't know, putting shit in my mouth, picking my teeth, becoming a dentist, insisting on oral sex, fill in the blank, choose your bodily opening. And the one that is the one that, 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 uh, that dominates your life is probably going to be the one that if you push it hard enough, will take you back to a very embodied experience where some part of you or the other that is embodied was um, cast out. So if you, for instance, have um, like an invocatory drive, like if it's all about music and sound and you're the kind of person like, like I, walk around, I walk around San Francisco sometimes, it's so damn loud, it's so damn crazy, fools be screaming, doing all kinds of shit, I just put earplugs in. And even that doesn't help with the sounds of traffic in this city. I'd sometimes just walk around with earplugs. I'll forget that I have earplugs in and I'm just like walking around because I can't handle all that noise. You see? So here I am trying to fill the opening that is my erogenous zone here known as the ear. Now I'm not saying that my drive is an invocatory one because we can have multiple drives, but there's usually one I would say that's dominant. Your scopic, oral, anal, or vociferic. And there you have it. And the idea is that through analysis, you would be able to march back to whatever that cause was and come to terms with it. Even in the early 50s, when Lacan is working up what it means to be a psychoanalyst and what it means to undergo psychoanalysis, he has this very explicit orientation that this is a talking cure. And the reason why that matters 
is one, because the medium of psychoanalysis is speech. It is spoken discourse. But two, it matters because psychoanalysis operates at the level of the name. To come to terms with someone's issue is to name it and to help them name it, to name your no-nos. That's kind of what we're up to here. At least that's how I read Lacan in this final push towards the name. The psychoanalyst or the discourse of the analyst is a discourse that is performed by somebody who has a name for their no-no, who has come to terms with it. And I think, yes, in terms of training, part and parcel of Lacanian psychoanalytic training is to undergo that analysis so that you can very honestly assume the position. Yet, though, Kaim, what I would say is, you know there are some motherfuckers that pretend. And it's probably not that hard to show up and just play that part for your patient. Act as if, right? Because it, it, it's interesting. I mean, it makes sense. And then it just brings me to the question of the end of analysis almost, but to, um, you know, what does that look like? Is it simply that I have recognized the cause, but I may still enact, right? I may still be possessed of the symptom, or is it that I have transcended the symptom and I've deleted Instagram and I'm just, you know, happy-go-lucky doing my thing and I don't, I'm no longer possessed of it. And I suspect it's the former that, right, like I'm aware of it. Maybe I haven't stopped doing all the weird shit, right? Like I'm Freud and I haven't stopped doing cocaine and telling people I know everything, but I at least know what it's about and I can tell you, help you find yours. Yep, totally. We're, we're not, I mean, I, I don't think the end of analysis produces this like, er, this extra worldly free of desire being. And that that's partly why Lacan is, is oftentimes down on the Zenist tradition. He's like, this whole idea of like getting beyond desire and desire being an illusion. He's like, fuck that noise. There is a traversing of fantasy that has to happen. But that doesn't mean that you stop desiring. And if you really dig into the Zenist tradition and the Buddhist tradition, those fools will tell you. The, the meditating monk shivers when they're cold. Their stomach growls when they're hungry. Sometimes they fall asleep while meditating. They are real embodied beings. The difference is, is that they're cool with it. We're not. When we're trying to meditate and our minds start to chatter and we get all monkey-brained and shit, we're harsh. We're like, come on, man, get it together. This is our time to meditate. What the fuck? We're hard on ourselves. The end of analysis is the occasion for love. But what I would suggest is that that love is twofold. It is first a love of self that we now talk about as self-compassion. And that is a forgiveness for the times when you just find yourself back on Instagram. You haven't deleted that shit, but you find yourself back. In fact, I know somebody who's very dear to me who regularly deletes her Instagram account or deactivates it. And I asked her, I said, I said um, she's like, I'm not going to delete it. She's like, let's be real. She's like, I just need to take a break from that shit. So she's not one of these people that's going to make the move of saying, and I'm done, and I'll never do that again, and I'm healed, and I'm no longer, as you said, possessed of the symptom. 
I'm in charge now, which is just a setup for failure. I feel like the end of analysis as I envision it is, um, is one of like a kind of easygoing contentment and a kind of acceptance of your foibles, your failures. Don't forget phallus and failure go hand in hand. It's a kind of acceptance of the fact that you're castrated and that when you stumble, it doesn't produce anxiety, but instead a bit of a chuckle. And that kind of compassionate relationship to the self where you accept your split subjectivity, I think is what enables this second part of love, which is the end of analysis too, in my view, which is an ability to accept that in others too. I'm not perfect and you don't have to be either. We can both be fucked up together. And that doesn't mean that like you fill my cracks and I fill yours. A good relationship in this viewpoint would be one where your rough edges don't aggravate my rough edges. We're able to work together in a way that you don't make, you don't bring out the worst in me and I don't bring out the worst in you. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.